God, I thank you for everybody that's here. And I thank you for your word and that your word does not return void, that your word is living and active. And we, we open our hearts to your word. I pray as, uh, as your word comes forth that you would guide us and uh, you would speak your words. Tell us in your mighty name. Amen. God has a heart for the lonely, for the abandoned. Uh, it's through, throughout Scripture. God is a father to the fatherless. Uh, Dave, David wrote that. David also wrote in Psalms 27.10, said, My father and mother have abandoned me, but the Lord will take me in. And David wasn't being an angsty teenager when he shared that his father and mother had abandoned him. His adopted father was literally trying to kill him. So it's, it's, it was, if anything, it was an understatement. He was, he was saying, I, I've been abandoned, but the Lord will take me in. And we live in a very lonely society. We live in one of the most isolated societies in history. So he says, I will be a father to the fatherless. And that is such a huge promise. But then he goes on the verse after that and says something. He says, God places the isolated in families. So if he's going to be a father to the fatherless, why does he need to place the isolated in families? We just saying, all I need is you. Like, all I need is Jesus. You are my one thing. Why does David in one point say, hey, God's my father, he's going to take care of me. And the next point, he says, God places the isolated in families. The answer is we need other people. God created that need in us. And part of following God is following his commands and opening our hearts to other people. The first thing that God said was not good. This was before Adam and Eve sinned. There was one thing in the world that was not good. He created all the things, and he said, it's good. Created the animals, said, it's good. The plants, it's good. Created Adam, said, it's good. And he said, it's not good for man to be alone. God created Adam first, and we don't know, the Bible doesn't say how long Adam was there. It does say that God took all the animals and, and introduced Adam to all the animals. So it could have been a little while, could have been a long time, but God created a place where Adam felt his aloneness. Because it says he, he did not find a helper suitable for him. But why do we need other people? The usual answer is companionship. And when we talk about companionship, we talk about the warm and fuzzies. Well, we need other people because... Oh, we just need other people. <laughs> just, there's that fuzzy feeling you get when you share, and it's great. And that's important. Man, it, it, if you've ever been in a prayer meeting, and you bear your heart to someone, and they pray from their heart, there, there's something there that is warm and fuzzy, and it's awesome, and it's amazing, and it's, it's great. But I want to talk today about another reason, and it's in Proverbs 18.1. 
says, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Now, the word isolate means to separate, to purposefully separate. So a person who isolates makes himself separate from everyone else. He seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. So isolation, what that means is isolation equals selfishness and stupidity. Or it means being ignorantly selfish. When we are left to ourselves, we are ignorantly selfish. So why does he place the isolated in families then? He places all these ignorantly selfish people in families and says, get along. <laughs> and I don't know about you guys, but with Stacy and I, it went perfect right away. <laughs> Just, ah, like birds were flying around and singing, singing love songs because our love was so great and so beautiful and... Then I woke up. <laughs> the two institutions God created are the family and the church. The, the family started with, it is not good for man to be alone, and the two shall become one. That's how the family started. The core of the family unit is the marriage relationship, the husband and wife. And then Jesus prayed about the church, make them one as we are one. And that's pretty, that's pretty one oneness. Like Jesus is so close with the Father, they're literally one. And he's saying, okay, make the church one as we are one. Bring them to that, that closeness. That doesn't happen on a Sunday morning. So it's unity, intimacy, and oneness. When I was young, I, there was a Sudanese pastor who came and spoke at my, my church, and it was in the height of the Sudanese Civil War and crazy stuff, and there was amazing poverty in Sudan and, and violence. And, and I talked to him. I got to talk to him after he spoke, and I said, how did you deal with the utter poverty? And he said something that has is, is stuck with me. Since then, he said, there's a greater poverty in the U.S. than in Sudan. You have a relational poverty. And he talked about the loneliness he'd felt and the isolated and how, how we all just live in our own bubble and we don't. In Sudan, they lived as a family unit. The, the lost boys literally walked in groups of 100, becoming a family. And so he saw the worst of the worst of poverty in the world, and he said, that was easier than the isolation that happens in the U.S. We don't know how to do intimacy in the Western world. We don't know how to do emotions. You look at how David and the, the Jewish people emoted, and we don't, we don't know how to mourn. We don't know how to let people in. Our parents didn't know. They didn't teach us, and, and we're having a hard time teaching our kids. We're stumbling along. And that's why there's divorce and breakdown of the family unit. It's why pornography is happening in the world and in the church. Because seeking a fake intimacy, people see that they don't have that intimacy, and so they're, they're going, okay, I, I need something. Maybe this will give me that feeling. 
It's why alcohol and drug abuse, to numb that feeling of aloneness, it's what we, we label a lot of teen angst, is just teenagers yelling, someone know me, someone love me. And we go, oh man, that, that kid's messed up. Yeah, he is. We made him that way. A society with non-intimate relationships is a narcissistic society. And a narcissistic society is a society that eats itself up. Most people in America view themselves as the center of the universe. They wouldn't say that. But they judge others based on how they affect them. If you make me feel bad, you are toxic and I am gone. You're canceled. We can do mini cancel culture. There's a divorce culture where my happiness is the highest good. And so anybody that gets in the way of my happiness, oh, you're gone. And it's built into the foundation of American culture, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. There's a lot of great things about America. That pursuit is not one of them. The selfish pursuit for ha of happiness is, is going to destroy us and isolate us, and it's making us narcissistic, selfish, ignorant people. Nice encouraging word this morning. <laughs> we equate happiness with love, and it's not wrong to feel happiness in love. But the root of love is not our own happiness, but sacrifice. If you are not sacrificing on a daily basis, are you truly loving? We're in this mess. What is God's answer? Families. It says God places the isolated in families. Who are the isolated? The ignorantly selfish. Who are the ignorantly selfish? My hand's up. Anybody else? places us in families. And the core relationship of both institutions that God created is marriage. Christ is married to the church, and at the core of the family is the marriage. So when I got married, I was also a professional husband before I got married. I knew all there was. I read probably over 20 books. My parents had a successful marriage and raised me well. So I went into marriage, and this is honestly what I thought, and I even told some people, and some people laughed at me. They said, uh, I know I'm going to have to be patient with Stacy because she came from a broken, broken home, and so there's a lot of things she doesn't know. Uh, and I'll be patient. I'll patiently love her like Christ loves the church because I'm set up for it. I've read the books. And in reading books about marriage and then jumping in, is, and it's good to read books about marriage, but reading books about marriage and jumping in is like reading books about swimming and then jumping in the deep end and going, okay, let me see. So I went in, and that first year of marriage, Stacy had to be very patient with me because I was ignorantly selfish because all of my life I had been a people pleaser. So people always thought I was very caring, but in actuality... All I wanted was for people to like me. 
So in the marriage, my goal was to please Stacy. If that's your goal, guys, it will kill you. Same with wives. Because that's not what the goal of marriage is. It's love. When we got back from our honeymoon, everyone talks about the honeymoon stage. Our honeymoon stage ended the night we got back. We went to the store and we wanted to go shopping together as a, as a family unit. Very exciting. Until we got to the refried bean section. <laughs> and there was a big, large can of refried beans on sale for the same price as the small one. And I said, we're getting the large one. And she said, no, we're going to waste that. We need to not waste food. Uh, you don't need a lot of beans, and I don't want you to eat a lot of beans, so <laughs> we're going to get the small one. And I said, no, we're going to get the large one. We, we, we need to be accountable for our finances. God has given this us. You, and, and it got personal very quick. I was like, you just don't care about finances. You don't care about what God has entrusted us. You will just spend it all on little refried beans. <laughs> and, and so we're driving home. I got my way, which, guys, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't work. We, we had the big refried beans. And we're driving home yelling at each other over refried beans. We did have to end up throwing away the refried beans. And she didn't say, I told you so. So that's a, that was a big thing on her. But right away I became aware of a selfishness in me that I did not know I had. Because when you live on your own, it's not... I can get whatever refried beans I want. <laughs> if I want to get some pudding snacks, I'll get pudding snacks, and I'll eat it for dinner, and no one will say anything because I'm in my apartment by myself. And I did that many times. <laughs> and I have gut issues now. <laughs> I was ignorantly selfish. But Stacy... Every time I would do something that was unpleasing to her, I would get angry with her. If I hurt her, I would be angry with her, unless it was something where I purposely did it. If I was purposely a jerk, I'd be like, yeah, you're right. I was purposely a jerk. But if it was something where I, I just was ignorantly a jerk, I would get upset with her. And I'd get defensive. And I'd be like, well, you're just being sensitive. Well, well, you need to deal with offense. The Bible says da 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 And... And I would get biblical with it. And I was killing her with my words. And Stacy was faithful. She was a faithful wife. She continued to submit her hurt to me, which is hard. We talk about wives submitting, and we have this Western view of it. The biggest thing of submitting is giving, and I'm going to get to this later, but giving your whole self and trusting yourself to someone else. So Stacy, through it all, Man, that really hurt me, knowing that she was going to get rejected. And she continued. Marriage is important. And so I'm going to share the scripture that you've probably heard a hundred times at weddings, Ephesians 5. But we need to hear it outside of weddings. 
That's the only time we're meditating on that verse. I'm going to start a little before most people start. First, I want to lay out the book of Ephesians because it's an awesome book. Ephesians is a book about intimacy. If you have problems being vulnerable, being intimate with God, with other people, read Ephesians. The phrase in Christ is used throughout it countless times. All of it is about being intimate with Christ, being in Christ, being abiding in him. The first three chapters are on the theology of intimacy with Christ. And then chapter four goes into Christ's plan for the church. And chapter five starts with the command to walk in love. Ephesians 5.1 says, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And the rest of the chapter is how we walk that out. So it starts with that, and then it goes into different ways of walking it out. We're going to start in verse 18 and go through verse 33. So Ephesians 5, 18 through 19 says this. It says, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalm, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. So we're admonished not to get drunk. And it's not just, it says with wine. That you, also, other things. Can't, I didn't get drunk with wine. I got drunk with beer. We don't get drunk because it just numbs our loneliness but doesn't fix it. It says don't get drunk with wine. That's not going to fix the problem. It says here's what you need to do. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And it talks about Four things that starts with two things in this verse that go along with being filled, in the, filled with the Spirit. And, it, and we don't know if these are causes or effects, or I think they just go along with it. That they both, the, as, as we walk out one thing, if we get filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to worship. As we worship, it's going to open us up to be filled more with the Holy Spirit. And so in this verse, it talks about worship and encouragement. Because it says, sing songs to each other. Like, it's not just singing songs to God, but it's encouraging other people of going, okay, man, let's keep going. Let's keep doing that. So if you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to worship, and you're going to encourage other people. And also, if you start worshiping, if you're like, how do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Start worshiping. Start focusing on Jesus. Start encouraging other people. The Holy Spirit is his name, means encourager. And so if you do what he's doing, you're going to find him. So worship and encourage, and then it goes in, next verse, to say a couple other things. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What also goes along with being filled with the Holy Spirit is giving thanks always for everything and subjecting ourselves one to another. So give thanks. What if we started to give thanks for our people, the people that God's placed in our lives? What if we started meditating instead of on offenses, but started meditating on the goodness of the people in our life? A friend of mine, when I got married, gave me really good advice. He said, I have made my wife my definition of beauty. Every morning I wake up and I think about her beauty. I think about what makes her great. I think about 
what makes her who she is. And so that's something I've done as I get up in the morning, look over at Stacy. I usually wake up a little before her. And I, and I just thank God. I start thanking God for the things. And sometimes we were up till 2 o'clock in the morning uh, talking about things I wasn't thankful about. And so I'd wake up kind of grumpy and look over and it's like, okay, thank you, God. Thank you that I have a wife that's patient enough to stay up till 2 in the morning. Thank you that she's honest with me. Thank you that she's faithful. Thank you that she's beautiful. Thank you that she, and, and I just start thanking God, and my heart changes, and, and, I'm, and I'm not even focusing on the Holy Spirit, but I, I, get, I get filled with the Holy Spirit. Pastor Mitch said last year when he was talking about thankfulness, as we sanctify what we give thanks for, So worship, encouragement, thanksgiving, and the fourth is subjecting yourselves one to another. What does that mean? We have the Western mindset that's a limited viewpoint of when we think of subjecting ourselves one to another. It's the, there's a big boss military guy, and I obey whatever he says. Uh, but the word, the Greek word is hypotasso, and it means to place one's, one's whole self under. Because the way they did the military back then, we think of military now in a business kind of structure layout. Back then, it was a family. It was your people. And so you were entrusting, when you had a leader, you were entrusting your whole self. When he said to go in, you were like, okay, I'm going in. And so throughout the New Testament, it talks about us subjecting ourselves one to another. It talks about wives submitting to husband. It talks about the younger submitting to the older. It talks about when you're in ministry, subjecting yourself to the other. What does that mean? Does that mean we just mindlessly obey everybody? I don't, I don't think that that's what it means. I think it means this. I want to ask some questions, and this is, what, this is where you can figure out, am I really submitting myself to other people? Who are the people in your life that know everything? Like, who are the people that know that thing? Who have you given permission to speak into your life? And I'm not talking silent permission. You've gone to them and said, please call me on these things. How do you respond when people do? call you on things? Who do you share your passions, your fears, your in insecurities to? Who do you ask, should I do this to? Should I buy this truck? Should I go talk to this person at work that I want to talk to? And should I talk to them the way that I want to talk to them right now? Who are the people in your life that have those open doors? This is a command. We are commanded to subject ourselves one to another. And it's also a fruit of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so if you say you're filled with the Holy Spirit, you are going to be in relationship where you're vulnerable, you're open, and people have the right to call you on things. So, this is where we get into the wedding verses. 
Ephesians 5, 22 through 24, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is his, himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Wives, when I asked those questions, is your husband's name on that list? It should be. If it's not, it's time to ask yourself some hard questions. Husbands, for your wives too. Is your wife on that list? I want to remind husbands that nowhere in the Bible does it say, husbands, make your wives submit. It's not found anywhere in the Bible. And if you are angry with your wife, because, man, she's not submitting, she's not being open, take a look. Are you submitting? Are you obeying that command? Who are the people in your life that you're open to? Are you open with your wife? Are you vulnerable about when she hurts you, or are you just a rage monster? So he goes on. For some reason, that's the controversial part of this chapter. When we read about it, and everyone's like, oh, wife, submit to your husbands. That's hard. But we don't take time and focus on the guys when it's... He, he sets a higher standard for the guys. Like, girls get two verses, we get eight. It says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Paul is talking about two different relationships here. He's talking about Christ in the church and the husband and the wife. One is modeled after the other. So I want to start with Jesus' relationship with the church, with us. What is it? I, I think there's, there's seven things laid out in here that, that are the core of, of Jesus' relationship with us. He gave himself up for us. Philippians 2, 3 through 8 says this. This is one of my favorite verses. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility... Count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on the cross. So Jesus gave himself up for us. There's two sacrifices that it talks there that are tied together, the sacrifice of Christmas and the sacrifice of Easter. And they're tied together. He gave himself. He gave up heaven. If you ever wonder, like, am I valuable? You can tell the value of something by that which somebody's willing to pay for it. Jesus gave up heaven to have a relationship with you. And he came down in the form of man, lived a sinless life, and then he, he died on the cross. He took our punishment and, and in our place, he gave himself up for us. And he continually gives himself, his heart is totally open. He gave himself once and for all. It's a Christmas gift. It's the greatest Christmas gift that we can open every day, Right? So not only did he give himself up for us, his goal is to sanctify us, to set us apart. His goal isn't about him. His goal is about his bride. It's like, I'm coming back for a bride without spot or wrinkle, and I'm going to do that work. And his, his vision is to see us set apart. How does he do that? He washes us with the water of his words. And that, the word there, there's two words for word, rhema and logos. Logos is the written word. Rhema is the spoken word. And that word there is the spoken word. So he literally washes us in the water of his words. When, when we open up our Bible, when, we, when we're li- listening to him in prayer, his words come, his rhema word comes, and he speaks and he washes us clean. I don't know about you guys, but there's been a lot of times in my life, like after I've sinned, after, and I'm just sitting there. There's one time I was just really in a bad place. I just messed up and just like was in my, sh- in my shower and just, like, God, I am, I'm a failure. And, and, and I just felt like, raise your hands. I want to give you something. Raise my hands. I just felt God's love just he was like, I love you right where you're at. All I want is you. Open that door to me. I will change that room. Don't try to make yourself good enough to come to me. So he speaks life over us and the power of Jesus' words in our lives. If you've never experienced that, I want to tell you, be open to it because that's the only thing that changes you. Religion doesn't change you. Coming to church just in and of itself doesn't change you. Having an encounter with the word of God changes you. Letting Jesus speak to your heart and transform you. And he does that over and over and over again, even when we don't listen. Josh, I love you. Josh, listen to me. And he continues to speak life over us. In, in the midst of our stubbornness, in the midst of our sin, he speaks life. And he also, his, his words, what they wash off of us is the lies. Because all of us have lies that we believe about ourselves. It's like, no, you're not too far gone. No, my grace is sufficient for you. No, you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide behind that fig leaf. You can be vulnerable, you can be real. 
and he continues to speak, and he breaks those lies patiently. Some, I don't know about you guys, but there's sometimes there's lies I still believe that I don't. I'm like, I don't know why I still believe these. I woke up this morning with, with an offense that just came to my mind. I'm like, why am I still offended over these little things? And I give it to, to Jesus, and he speaks patiently, and he speaks, and his, his, his word just washes over me and washes that offense away. And he releases beauty to the church. When we feel the least lovely is when he loves the best. Because he, he's consistently loving it, but that's when we need it the most. So he washes us with the water of his words. And he works to show our splendor and glory with much patience and long-suffering, especially with me. He wants to show us off. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. He is, he's a proud husband. He's a proud dad. He's the, Jesus is a proud husband. He's like, I want to show my, like when he comes back for his church, he's going to go, this is my church. God continually praises people who were screw-ups. It's crazy in the Bible, it says righteous Lot, who was troubled by Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot compromised like, he, he did not speak out for Jesus to the point that when he, when he started warning people that God's wrath was coming, his family laughed because thought, they thought he was joking. And God doesn't write, hey, lukewarm Lot. He says, righteous Lot. And it says, Sarah, who did not waver in unbelief when, when God said, hey, you're going to have a baby when you're old. Sarah laughed. But here's the thing. It's like when, when my kids started walking, like Liberty started walking in like a Nordstr- Nordstrom's, I think, or some, some place, and it was like, and we're like, she took a step. She took a step. Do it again. Do it again, sweetheart. And we, we're like, she took a step. We didn't focus on the stumble. We're like, get up. Do it again. And Jesus is the same way with us. We're like, hey, you say to be a good husband, I'm going to do it. This week I'm going to do it really good. He stumbles. And he says, he's walking. He's walking. He was so selfish most of his life and he's finally seeing it and he's Really learning to love. Keep going, Josh. Good job. He nourishes and cherishes us. He's there. He's there when we're hurt over stupid things. Who, who followed Jesus when they were teenagers? Who, who, like, who had the talk with Jesus about your heart being broke when you were in junior high? I loved her, and then I saw her say yes to Billy. I had real heartfelt prayers with God, and God wasn't like, <laughs> silly junior hire. I felt God's love. He values, he goes, okay, this hurts you, then I'm going to let it hurt me. I'm going to be down here with you. 
when Mary cried, even though Jesus, Jesus wasn't sad, he knew Lazarus was going to be raised. When Mary cried, Jesus wept. And that's not just like, wept isn't the, the manly like theater cry where it's like, when, uh, when it's the action movie guy and he's like, Jesus full on wept as he said, I love her and she's hurting. And I'm going to enter in that with her. He nourishes and cherishes. He treats us as his own body. Literally to the point that he's tied himself to us. That what he does on earth is tied to his church. He said, I am going to work through my church. He's not going to go, okay, I'm done with you guys been talking to Silas about Cove and just not working out. I'm just going to do my own thing. I'm going to come down and take care of Cove. It's like, no, I've placed Silas and I've placed Ted and Cove. They're, they're doing my work. Oh, they're taking a step. Yeah. He treats us as his own body. And seventh, put this, this is kind of tied to the first, but I wanted to end with this. Is he, he died for us. Literally laid down his life. That's why four words in Ephesians 5 are the scariest four words in the Bible for me. It says, in the same way. It says, husbands, in the same way, love your wives. Okay, Jesus. Who, uh, who's got that down? Any husbands? How do we do that in the same way? Give yourself up. Give up your selfishness. Give up your pride. Give the, he gave the gift of Christmas, which was giving up that place that he was at, the comfort level, the, the areas. Give up your comfort. And then he was killed by us. And he did it willingly. In the midst of your marriage, give up your right to yourself. Make your goal her. Your first goal. My first goal in ministry is not me. It's, it's to see Stacy be uh, who God's called her to be. I don't do that perfectly. Wash her with the water of your words. Speak life. When she needs love most is when she feels the least lovely and when she's the least lovely to you. You're going to love her then. Break lies. And we don't break lies. Jesus doesn't break lies by saying, you're believing lies. I, I, I was really good at telling Stacy. I'm still, still pretty good at it. Telling Stacy all the lies she believes. Well, you're just viewing this wrong. Just view it this way and it'll be good. But that's not the way Jesus does with us. He speaks the truth. How do you not fall for lies? You speak the truth. What is your wife struggling with? Don't go to her and speak about the struggle. Speak to the opposite. She feeling insecure in her friendships? 
Tell her how great she is. Work to show her splendor and glory with much patience and long-suffering. Because it's going to take that in marriage. Because she's patiently long-suffering with you. Let's get this right. It's not like, it's not like we're, I'm the martyr. I'm the dad. I'm the husband. This is called to lay down my life for my wife. I have to be patient with her. She's patient with you. 1 Peter 3.7 says this. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you and of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. When I was a junior higher and I heard this verse, it became a weapon verse to the girls. I would be like, hey, weaker vessel. I didn't date in junior high. I don't know why, I don't know why Susie went for Billy. Like, but this verse, what it's talking about, when it says the weaker vessel, it's not talking about that she's weak, like we're greater than her. It was talking about in the context of it, it's like Tupperware versus fine china. It's like, treat, let yourself be the Tupperware, treat your wife like fine china. You, you take the, you're not going to put spaghetti, leaf spaghetti in grandma's fine china. You're not going to give fine china to your two-year-old. You're going to give the Tupperware. And so it's, it's saying like, hey, treat her like the gift she is. Nourish and cherish her. She knows she's crazy. <laughs> right? Wives, like, you know that, like, there's times, you know the thing you're crying over is crazy. She doesn't need you to give that side eye. I didn't say anything. What are you talking about? Yeah, you didn't say anything. Go to her in it. Jesus wept. That takes being vulnerable. Treat her as your own body. I treat my body well. I like food. I nourish and cherish it. I'm very good at nourishing my body. And die to your selfishness for her. You might say, well, you don't understand my wife. If you have a wife that you have to die for a lot, thank her. She is ridding you of your selfishness. You want to change the world, which we all, that's been placed in all of our hearts. You want to change the world? Love your wife. That's what the world's looking for. The best gift you can give your children, never love your children more than your spouse. And never love your spouse more than Jesus. Recently in our marriage, uh, we went to a conference uh, called Marriage Immersion up in Tacoma, and he said this said this was this is not a tools one. This is a surgery, and God really, because I went into it thinking again, selfishly ignorant. There's some things Stacy really needs to work on, and I need to learn how to support her. And God really hammered me. He said you have not been there for her. You've been emotionally distant. 
showed things in my life where I, I had made the choice at a young age just to deal with emotions on my own. And so Stacy was left to just deal with her own emotions without me there. So as we do this, and we're in the midst of this, and uh, it's great. I've cried, like that was in November. I've cried more in the last uh, two, uh, two months. It's like, what, what is God, what's God doing in you now? Uh, making me cry. Wives, I want to say just one final thing. Does not say make your husbands love you. Give thanks for your husbands. Submit. Share your heart. 1 Peter 3.1 says, even if your husband does not obey the word, you'll win him over by, by submitting and loving like Jesus did. So no matter where you're at, if you're married, we can all give thanks. We can all find ways to subject and learn to love like Jesus. And as you do that, you're going to open up and be life to the world. Because then you invite people in and you get the isolated become a part of the family. Because when you lay that foundation of selflessly loving in marriage, it creates a, a place, a shelter for people to go to. I'm going to share two quick testimonies and then end. There was a young man who came to the youth group just a couple times. Uh, and he came to the Christmas program where we and the staff bring their families. And then he left. He was in a really broken home where parents were fighting over who had to take him and all kinds of things. And he left, and then he came back to the church 10 years later. He'd moved down to Arizona. He came back to LeGrand to find me, and he said, uh, I don't know what, what I need, but I know when I went to the Christmas program and I saw your family, and I saw the families there, and I saw the kids, he said, that's the only time I've seen true love. So whatever you guys have, I want. And I was able to lead him to the Lord, give him a Bible. Then we were at one of Stacy's fam family's place. And uh, there was a family member she hadn't seen in a long time that got to hang out with our family. And at the end, he came to me and said, you guys have something special. He said, I didn't think that there was love like you, your family has. He said, and we were able to witness to him. And, and I look at families in the church. There's the Fosters, the Kelties, the Underhills, the Parkers, and so many more that I see God working in their families as they, they started with a marriage and they said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die to my selfishness. And then now God's placing the isolated in their families. And... So start with the marriage and then open the door. God places the isolated in families, so if you're a follower of God, you will have the isolated in your family. If that's not a part of your life, then you need to take a look of like, am I really following God? Light word this morning. God, I pray that you would, you promise that you will continue the work that you began. And I pray as we we lay ourselves before you and say we want, we want to love like you do. Thank you for giving us our families. Pray that you would guide us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Pray all this in your mighty name. Amen.